I'm sorry I get a little mixed up on that hymn. There are about three versions of it. I went one time to preach, uh, well, I went several times to preach in Vietnam, but one of the times I was preaching up close to Da Nang in a tent and that hot orange sand, and I happened to be preaching to the Marine Corps, and the uh, commander of the Marine, Marines out in that area was General Lewis W. Walt at that time, and he was uh, present. And they sang this, but they have a Marine version of it. They have an uh, Air Force version, a Marine version, an Army version. And uh, so I just went back to the sea version right quick before we got mixed up. Uh, we, have been, we had been studying prior to the time for Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday the letter of what Christ thinks of the church. It does not matter so much what people down the street think of the church, but it does matter a great deal what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks of the church. And in the book of Revelation, which was written in a time of persecution and trial, we see some valuable words coming from the risen Christ to his servant John the Apostle and being written by John and sent to a series of seven churches down through history. Christians have studied the message to these seven churches and have sought to apply them to their own particular church. What does Christ think of the Montreat Church? What does Christ think of the church in which you worship and work? What kind of church would your church be if every member was just like you are? How faithful are you to Jesus Christ? We looked at the church in Ephesus and saw that this was a church that had been commended for its labor and its patient endurance, but that church's love had grown cold. And so that church is told to return to its first love and it would be rewarded with eating of the tree of life. The church in Smyrna did not receive one word of censure or correction. I think of the church in China and the church in Russia today as like the church in Smyrna, a church that suffered terribly. It was the suffering church. But this church was told to keep on being faithful in the midst of suffering, that it would not be hurt by the second death, that there is a limit to all suffering. The church at Pergamos, a huge capital city, much like Washington, D.C., or Moscow, or Peking, the church at Pergamos was a church that had to admit to an era, an era of trying to compromise in its truth and compromise also in its holiness. And God will not tolerate heresy in doctrine, in its teaching, nor heresy in life. And the evil practices there are to be corrected. And if they are, then the church of Pergamos will be able to eat of the hidden manna, uh, God will bless that church and bring it back. Then the last church we studied was the church at Thyatira. And this was a church in which there evidently was some evil person who is called that woman Jezebel. 
which had led the people into fornication and sexual immorality, and it introduced something much like the new morality today. I remember so well visiting one of our distinguished old ministers, Dr. Alexander McLean, in the hospital in Asheville one day. He was hard of hearing. He had a copy of Parade magazine in front of him, and he was reading what one of our general assemblies had said uh, regarding human sexuality. And there was almost no word regarding sin, regarding fornication, adultery, lesbianism, homosexuality, or anything else. And old Dr. McLean, with great common sense, looked at it. It was a little hard of hearing, so when he spoke, everyone down the hall heard it too. He said, you know, the Bible is a mighty hard book to understand, but it sure is plain on this. <laughs> and he was so right. He was so right. It's funny that the theologians have such a hard time understanding the Bible and that the common people can read it and take it for what it says and see the truth. Well, the church at Thyatira was a church that was, was challenged to come back to being holy. And now today, we hear the message coming to the angel of the church in a famous town called Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive and you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. May God bless to our understanding these words from the risen Christ. It was a very famous city. Some of you have heard the proverb, as rich as Croesus. He was a king who had accrued a great amount of gold. And his city of Sardis was very much, I'm glad that they showed that film on television, Masada, because you could get a little bit of an idea of what a city like Sardis was like. It was a fortress a city. It was very difficult because uh, to conquer it because it was on such a high ground that in order to take the high ground, you have to expose yourself to great risks. It was a rich city. It had acquired a means of, of having water and of growing food supplies, and so it could uh, 
stay there when it was under siege until most of the people who tried to besiege it uh, would give up and go away. But Sardis was captured twice. King Croesus, I remember once going to Delphi, the oracle didn't say anything to me, but I went to, uh, in Greece to all those rocks, I don't see how anybody could learn, but uh, I went up there, uh, and, and this crazy king, uh, Croesus, went to the oracle of Delphi just before he went out to do battle against the Persians, and he was told that a great empire would fall. Well, he egotistically assumed that the empire that was going to fall was the Persian empire. But the empire that fell was his. He went out to battle and got thoroughly routed, but he thought all he had to do was to, was to go right back to his city of Sardis, go right up to the top of that mountain again, and that he could uh, refit his army, and that they had everything they needed, they could come back down again, and that they would be all right. But the king did not realize that uh, he was slack. It was a prosperous city. And sometimes when we become too healthy or too rich, we become too, too dull in our spiritual sensitivity. As I tried to point out in the prayer, we begin to be lulled asleep. And an interesting thing occurred uh, when he was besieged by the Persian army. Uh, one of the army commanders um, had said that he would give an award to anyone who could figure out a way to get up that mountain and to conquer Sardis. And so there was one soldier, a Mardian, uh, who was watching very carefully. He was watching all the time that fortress city. And he noticed a man on guard duty. And while he was on guard duty, he did what I would probably do. He bent over and his helmet fell off. <laughs> and it went tumbling down in a crevasse and a big crack in the rocks. And he watched that man. And he didn't want to lose that good helmet. So he came out of the fortress and he started climbing down through the cracks in the rock, retrieved his helmet. But he was being watched all the time. And the soldier down on the ground realized that if he could come down that way, that he could go up that way. And so at night, he got him, uh, the soldier on the ground got himself a troop of men, a squad, and they got together and they scaled the wall. And the people, sure enough, were not on the alert on top, and they conquered the city of Sardis. Now, that's why you see that word uh, watch brought out so faithfully here to this church that is in Sardis. Because the same thing happens again in the history of Sardis a little bit later on. Uh, this had happened uh, uh, about 500 years before the birth of Christ, and then about 250 years before the birth of Christ, it happened again. Almost the same thing. Uh, the fortress mentality has a way of causing us to be drugged into a, a complacency that can lead to our being overcome. Now, archaeologists uh, have been able to find, I found more material on the church at Sardis than any of the other churches I've studied. And I did because archaeologists have been able to uh, discover in the ruins there uh, many remarkable things, many things that show uh, Old Testament biblical history and their illusions in this letter to the Old Testament that showed that the church in Sardis was a church that believed the Bible. It was a very active church. We are told that it was a church that had the name of being alive. Something was going on there every single night. 
I have a friend out in the West Coast whose name is Don Mumaw. He used to play football, and he came here one time. I remember he spoke right up here in the front of Gaither Chapel. He, he made All-American two or three times at UCLA, and uh, Piedmont lost his luggage coming in. And so he, he was rather crazily attired when he was here, and he explained to us why his unusual attire was on, and he said, does anyone here have a size 52 T-shirt? He was a big tackle for UCLA and later played for the pros. Don Mumaw said that uh, he uh, had uh, uh, tried to recruit some uh, person uh, to join his church and that uh, they had told him that uh, he had so many activities in his church that he wasn't physically able to keep up with the activities and he couldn't join his church. So the church at Sardis was not a defunct organization. There were meetings there practically every night. Uh, but as someone has said, that it, it was an organization and not an organism. It's possible to be busy in activity and to leave out a love and a dedication for Christ. And so the, the word, I know your deeds, I know your budget, I know all the good things that you do, I know what they write up about you in all the church papers, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Boy, that comes in hard. Wake up, says Christ. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Anytime you think you have arrived spiritually, you are dead spiritually. You keep on growing. You must walk into heaven with your book in hand, still learning, still learning and still growing. Remember, therefore, what you have received. Now, what would they have received? First of all, what's the greatest gift that God gives us? It's the gift of salvation, but salvation comes to us by the gift of the Holy Spirit, awakening us to our need of salvation. The risen Christ breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And it's possible for a lot of activity. Someone said a few years ago, some theologian said that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church, much of its organization would keep on going and probably run even smoother. I wonder how much the Holy Spirit has to do with some of the things that we do in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, therefore, what you have received. They had received the Holy Spirit. Remember what you heard. Keep it and repent. Where is the blessedness I knew, wrote William Cooper, when first I found the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Does Jesus mean more to you now than he ever meant in your life? If he does not, something is wrong with you spiritually. Does he mean more than you than he's ever meant before? If he does not, something is wrong with you spiritually. Samuel Johnson used to say, keep your friendships always in constant repair and keep your love for Jesus always in constant repair. Samuel Johnson resolved that when on the Sabbath day he awakened, 
the first thing that he would do would be to go to bed early on Saturday night so that he would be more alert for the service on Sunday. That on getting up on Sunday morning, that he would read his Bible and that he would set this day apart to enrich his soul and that he would prepare himself for the worship of God by thinking through the past week and the things which he had done which were not profitable in his spiritual life and in his devotion to Jesus and the things which he had done which were and he would seek to cultivate those things and he had carved on his watch remember that the night is coming watch the night is coming when man can work no more and so we are told these things here the language which Christ used is strong language but it's apocalyptic language and apocalyptic language, strong language, is demanded for times of testing. Jeremiah had to write to an apostate people. In Jeremiah 30, 12, your heart is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is no medicine for it. But then, with this strong language, which is hyperbole, like Jesus saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Well, Peter was not Satan, but he was talking like Satan when he tried to detract Jesus from his primary task, which was to take him to the cross. When, Je when Peter said in that Caesarea Philippi, a confession in uh, Matthew 16, this shall never be to you, Lord, when Jesus said he must go up to Jerusalem and die. And the church must not be distracted from its primary work of salvation because that's why we're here that's why we're here but if we are willing to listen to these stern words of judgment there will also be words of grace that will come too. I can remember as a, a rather lazy student in high school because I was always eager to get to the football field and the and the afternoon I would there was a little Man, I hope my wife will understand this. There was a little girl that played the flute in the band whose name was Martha Hodges. I can still remember <laughs> very pleasantly. And uh, uh, she, she, <laughs> she played the flute. And uh, she was blonde, very pretty. And, and uh, uh, there was a guy that played the drum who had pimples all over his face. And uh, I would sit up there trying to think about whatever I was taking, algebra or something I didn't like. And uh, I would listen to the, to the band down there practicing on the parade field. And the sound would come drifting up to the floor on Paris High School where I was a student. And I would listen for the flute. And when the wind was blowing uh, the direction toward the, the building, I could hear the flute. It was so pretty. Created pleasant thoughts in my mind. And then when the band turned and went another direction and the wind was blowing away, all I could hear was the boom, boom, boom of the pimply-faced skinny guy that was beating the drum. And uh, uh, that's the way it is. Judgment and grace are like that. When the wind's blowing one direction, you can hear the sweet flute. When the wind's blowing the other direction, you can hear the drum. But now judgment and grace go together. And a preacher who preaches judgment and no grace is, of course, making a great mistake. And a preacher who, who preaches all 
grace and no judgment is making an equal but opposite error. We, there must be a judgment. And we must uh, give an account to God. Unto whom much is given of him shall much be required. And so we are told here uh, to watch. This city of all the cities ought to remember that it had been overtaken but like a thief in the night when that soldier had led that group up that crevasse and had seen their city conquered. And uh, later in Matthew 25, Jesus will use that same uh, analogy. I will come as a thief in the night when he speaks of the second coming. Paul will use the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. Be, do not be s s loitering or, slum or sloughing off time as those uh, who sleep away the night because he will come and he will come quickly as a thief in the night. And also Peter in one of his epistles will, will use that same, same theology of surprise. God will surprise you just in a moment when you think everything's okay. God will surprise you. The other day when Nathan and I were in Hong Kong, uh, I went over there to the Peninsula Hotel. Nobody could ever afford to stay in that hotel. But I thought I'd go in there and have tea until I looked at the way they were dressed and the expensive uh, silverware and all that linen, and I knew I couldn't even have tea there. So I went around to the barber shop, and uh, I could get a haircut, and I got one. Uh, well, when the World War II broke out, um, the Japanese uh, came, and they began to take over everything. And the British had thought that the Japanese in taking the city of Singapore later would attack from the sea. They had bombed Pearl Harbor and they had a big navy and the British just knew that they would attack from the sea but instead they came through the swamps and they surprised them and they were able to take it. And so we are, are told not to be surprised. We are told to be on the alert and to watch. In Exodus 32, uh, God had said to Moses that he would blot the names of people out of the book of life. And this same threat is echoed here, which shows you some of the authenticity that those who have studied archaeology in this early church in Sardis knew. That this church knew its Old Testament. And that's important for us to remember. The Lord warns us and his warnings are to be taken seriously. Now what does it mean to be warned? Well it means a lot of things to be warned. Uh, we've talked about uh, the love uh, which is extended to us in grace uh, but there is also love in warning. Uh, we can't just say uh, when we get married that we love our wife just that time and never say it again. There's an old cowboy joke that my wife teases me about, uh, about some cowboy whose wife said, Honey, you never tell me that, that you love me. And he turned around and he said, Okay, honey, I'm going to tell you. Now listen real carefully. I love you. Now don't forget it this time. <laughs> well, you can't do that uh, and, and have a happy marriage. Uh, love uh, and faith go together there and they grow. And uh, the warning is there that we must not uh, allow this uh, stultifying effect to come in. And uh, if you read these words, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. 
If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Now that's, that's significant. You will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Earl Palmer, who is going to be teaching a course in Romans at the uh, University at uh, Vancouver in Regent College this summer, has a commentary on Romans, and he has a new book, I hope, that's coming out on Revelation. And uh, when he comes to this point, he tells us the, uh, a funny story. Uh, you have to, Earl Palmer's preached down here at the auditorium. I hope we can get him back sometime. He's such a good preacher. He tells a lot of stories, and I always get to use them. And uh, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he's very witty. He's on the board of trust at Princeton Seminary. He's very smart, and he's also evangelical, and I love that. And uh, uh, Earl Palmer uh, said uh, that uh, he was going home from his church in Berkeley, and he got to a stop sign, and he made what they call a Hollywood stop, which means that he just eased on through the stop sign without stopping, and the light came after him and pulled him over to the side. And when the light got him over to the side, uh, he started to say, uh, I'm the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. But he said he had tried that once before, and it didn't work. And so uh, he didn't try that. I've tried it, and it doesn't work either. Uh, in fact, I just give up. Uh, I just watch them write. I got one not long ago going to an FCA meeting. I, I never get away. All the 18-wheelers get away, but I don't get away. The truck drivers have got something going. But anyway, he said that this, this copy, he told him, he said, I'm really very sorry that I ran the stop sign. I bet that's why you pulled me over. Did I run it? <laughs> he knew he did. And the cop said, yes, you ran it. And because he didn't lie to him, he said, well, I'm really a very careful driver, and I want to be better. And so the cop folded his book up, and he said, okay, I'm not going to give you a ticket. And because he had told him that he drove by there every day, when the cops started to get back in his patrol car, he shouted out to him, but I'll be watching for you. <laughs> well, now, have you ever noticed when you're being watched how much difference it makes in your behavior? I have a lot of people say, why is it that so many of our college students, when they go off to college, quit going to church? I'll tell you why. It's because so many of the parents of those college students quit going to church when they go off to college. Someone said, train up a child in the way he should go and try walking in it once in a while yourself. It's because we don't set the example. We want our children to watch us. And then we'll behave better. And our children, when they watch us, they behave better. We should bring out the best in each other, but we should live consistent lives. And if I know Jesus is watching me, it makes all the difference in the world. I've often told uh, congregations of the old Negro spiritual, which came out of the slavery times in the South, which speaks about a book metaphorically like here. Your name will be blotted out of the book, says the risen Christ. The old Negroes uh, in the slave fields when their masters were beating them and cursing them and treating them meanly, they would get a chant going across a cotton field. My Lord's got a book. He hears all you say. He sees all you do. And my Lord's are writing all the time. It was amazing 
how some of the slave owners began to tremble and they began to restrain their language and to stop their mistreatment. We need to remember that sometimes. He is watching. He is watching. I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But then he says this, you have a few people in Sardis. I'm thankful for the master's minority that even in a dead church, there's a little minority of people who belong to the master, who have not soiled their garments, who have not given in to the luxury and the narcissistic self-indulgent culture, who have not soiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. And, the, and here again, archaeologically, there's an interesting new find about white. White was the clothing of poverty. White was not the clothing of the rich. The rich wore gorgeous robes. Sardis was famous for dyeing woolen cloth. The rich could wear colored garments. But here, there is a peasant thread running through it. He speaks of those who wear a white garment. He points that out, that there are many poor people who are very loving and loyal to Jesus in their poverty, and they are worthy, and they'll walk with me in white. Did you know the other day I sat by uh, Mr. Nehru's sister on an airplane riding from uh, New Delhi to London and uh, we got into a conversation and I tried to bear some Christian witness to her I talked about Sadhu Sundar Singh a great Christian mystic and we talked about Raj Kamari G one of the members of Mr. Nehru's cabinet who was a Christian that I had known and uh, then uh, I asked her one time I saw one of the men get up on the airplane and uh, walk down the aisle and he had one of those caps like Mr. Nehru used to wear and I thought Mr. Gandhi used to wear that same cap. And I said, who, who got the idea of this cap? And she said, well, Gandhi invented that cap. She said, do you know where that cap came from? And I said, no. And she said, that is a cap that has to be worn by all prisoners. And he was a prisoner of the British. But he wore that cap. But his conduct was so powerful even in his nonviolent protests, that that cap has become a badge of distinction. And the Indians took it up, and they all began to wear it. And that began to shake the British loose from their rule over India. That cap. Well, here he is saying something like that, walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall thus, thus be clothed in white, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. Isn't that wonderful? That he would confess our name before his father and before all the holy angels. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father in heaven. Now he's watching us. He's watching us. Harry Bryan is here this morning, and he was a close friend of Peter Marshall. I think, Harry, were you, were you at his funeral in Washington? I thought I saw Harry. 
he's preaching. Wasn't, wasn't he at Dr. Marshall's funeral? I thought he was. Uh, I got a copy of the funeral service the other day for Peter Marshall. And uh, in it, it's a very interesting service. Oh, it was a service of triumph. I thought about it because I'd come from Dr. Dindy's service over at Weaverville and these old men who are faithful unto death, Peter Marshall at 46, Dr. Dindy at 85. And uh, this is what Peter Marshall said in one of the sermons not long before his death about America and Memorial Day. The freedom that was purchased Back then, he said, 171 years ago was not paid for in down payments by one down payment. Installments have kept it up for more than two lifetimes. For this is one possession that exacts a perpetual price. There is a danger in your sitting back smugly and applauding when the flag is thrown on a movie screen or puffing yourself up with pride as you boast of America, for you were born here. Unless you have lived in other lands and unless you have known hunger and persecution, unless you have come as an immigrant to this good land as he had, you have no idea how good it is. How can you truly be grateful since you have no conception of what it means to be without all the things that you take for granted? You've never known anything else. It is because they who went before you were willing to stake their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor that you have what you now enjoy, but you forget it, and you forget how bitterly it was won. The story of the waste of this country's resources is a sad story of greed and selfishness. Can you imagine that? More than 20 years ago he said that. The story of the waste of this country's resources is a sad story of greed and selfishness. It was a good land, but we were greedy. We wanted money and crops, and our slogan was plow and plant and plow and plant, and we moved on until the land gave out. Our reckless stripping away of the vegetable cover of the soil has driven our animals out in invited erosion. The same wanton waste and disregard for the future is to be seen in the almost criminal waste of oil. In the deforestation of our country, when the slogan seemed to be cut and sell and cut and sell. Surely freedom does not mean that people can do as they like. The natural resources of America, the heritage of the whole nation, and should be conserved and utilized for the benefit of all the people. It's, now listen to this. Now remember who this is. A proper Scottish Presbyterian with his soft Scottish whir. It is time we put the Bible back into our government. Time that our statesmen begin to make their decision on all moral questions on the basis of the authority of God's holy word. It is only by applying Christ's solution to the problems that plague us. It is only by living under his blessing and guidance that we can ever hope to add any new glory to old glory. We'll not sing the closing hymn, but instead I'll read the hymn that Peter Marshall chose to be sung at his service because this is the answer and the remedy for a dead Christian, a dead church, or a dead individual. You know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit working in us. Breathe on me, breath of God. This was sung at his service. Fill me with life anew. 
that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Breathe on me breath of God until my heart is pure, until with thee I will one will to do and to endure. Breathe on me breath of God till I am wholly thine, until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine. Breathe on me breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with thee the perfect life of thine eternity. Let us stand and be dismissed with prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray that thou wilt cause each one of us to consider where we are spiritually and to wake up and to come back to Jesus. If we have let slip our time of prayer and reading your word, if we have lost our glow and our desire to bear a testimony to someone else, if we are living just to be seen of men, then rebuke us from this play acting and help us to get right and to get honest with you. Help us to live the faith which we profess and faithfully walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, knowing only then will his blood cleanse us from all sin and knowing only then can we truly have fellowship one with another. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.